Hello and welcome to another edition of Marathon Time Breakthrough. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Dave Bird. Dr. Dave, how are you today? I'm very well, Mark. Super, glad to hear it. We're also joined by a special guest who Dave is about to introduce. Over to you, Dave. Yeah, I'm very, very happy to introduce Tom Bainbridge and Tom co-hosts Ben Coomer Radio, which uh, ostensibly tackles nutrition, but I've just been looking down the show list and the wealth of guests you get covering a variety of topics, including the guy who ran 40-odd marathons consecutively. You know, it's, it's really a, a brilliant show to, to tap into for a variety of fitness-related issues. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, it's really cool to be here. And yeah, thanks for the compliments about the show. I mean, as you say, we kind of try to diversify it a bit. So a lot of the fitness realm tends to focus on fat loss, nutrition, and or muscle building. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we kind of cover fitness, nutrition, mindset, and all sorts of different things. So mm. yeah. Okay, so um, taking a back step into the nutrition, what actually got you into nutrition, Tom? So anyone that's kind of around the sort of online fitness industry will probably recognize this story because it's the one that everyone seems to have. But I wasn't the typical fit kid at school. Um, so I was quite overweight until I was like 14, 15. Like I was the kind of kid that would sit in all summer and play on the Xbox and eat Nutella sandwiches. And I just got really overweight. Um, when I sort of entered my teens and realized that girls were a thing, um, I thought, well, I kind of need to sort this out. And from there, I found that because I was a big fat kid and I was bigger than everybody else, I was quite good at rugby. Um, yeah. Rugby sort of carried me through until I was 18. I generally improved my fitness. Um, and then as I got to college, the rugby team for the college, basically, the, the quality was amazing. Like, we had a really good rugby team, so I absolutely yeah. did not qualify. Um, so I decided, well, I need to do something. So I took up track and field because I was quite good at throwing. Um, from there, I just kind of was introduced a lot more into the nutrition side of fitness and how the nutrition can impact upon not only weight management, but your athletic performance. Mm. That kind of gave me the bug. Fast forward a couple of years, I've lost quite a lot of weight um, just become, by becoming really quite nerdy in fitness. Um, at the time, I was also studying uh, health science on the Open University, so got like a health science kind of background. Started working at a sports nutrition store, giving information out to the various customers that came in. Um, from there, usual transition to personal training, and then I was picked up by Ben Coomber. So it's kind of been the the fat kid to fit kid to someone who just obsesses over fitness, usual Irish mm. feel. How big were the barriers, um, you know, making that adjustment? Because that is quite a, a radical adjustment. And nutrition is notoriously, you know, like a habit-driven thing where it's easy to relapse. Yeah, I mean, I think anyone that's kind of studied like the trans-theoretical models, so which is where motivation will generally you go through various different stages so you've got pre-contemplation where you're not even thinking about it contemplation where you think about it and then i believe it's preparation action and maintenance yeah um there's two ways that you can kind of go through that and there's one which is the way that a lot of people do it where you'll very gradually go incrementally step by step i was fortunate i suppose you could say in that 
one day I just woke up and said, right, I need to sort this out. I'm fat. I need to, I need to deal with it. And from there, it was kind of, because of that, for me, it was quite easy, um, which I don't want it to come across as arrogant. I want it to come across as I was lucky in the way that my mind worked. Um, but I did all of the usual horrible mistakes. So during my fat loss process, um, I cut fat basically completely on my diet because I didn't know anything about anything. Um, I ate maybe like two meals a day. So I lost a lot of weight really quickly. And then it was from there that I realized, yeah, my sports performance is dipping. And that's where I started to learn a little bit more. So for me, the main barrier was just self-education. And it was a case of learning how to manage my weight without either eating all of the things so that I can throw or eating nothing so that I wasn't fat. It's kind of finding that middle ground. Sure thing. Is there... um. Yeah, you laid out that kind of important framework that we all cover on our personal training diplomas and whatnot. But um, I'm interested, um, do clients or people you work with on nutrition always get stuck more at one of those stages than another? Or does it depend on the individual a lot? Well, everything always depends on the individual. Um, mm. But I, there are sort of patterns that we see. Um, a lot of people who come to nutritionists, personal trainers, will come to them due to either referrals from doctors or recommendations from people in their immediate circle. And these people are usually still in the pre-contemplation stage. So although they've approached a trainer or they've approached somebody to help with the problem that they've got, um, you usually see that they're actually not ready to change at all. And these are the clients that will come to you. They'll be there for three months. They won't make any progress and then they'll leave. The other people I quite often see in sort of in the preparation stage. So it's just people get stuck in this idea that I really want to do something, but I don't know how to do it perfectly. So I'm not going to start. And I mean, if you look back at, at my story and the story of a lot of people that we know, it's like a lot of people in fitness did things wrong for a really long time before they got it right. And although they might've been doing things kind of suboptimally or imperfectly, they did make progress and it was an imperfect step towards that better approach. So mm. I guess kind of the, the advice I always give is to just, it doesn't really matter what you do, just start and do something and it'll eventually get better. Sure thing. Sure thing. So um, I'm sure you've worked with a, you know, a wide spectrum of, of people. How, how different is it? Cause I'm thinking maybe of the running community here a bit, um, you know, that there's a more extreme case like, you know, the story you told about someone who needs to do it for health and weight loss reasons. Do you, do you notice any real differences when it's more a modification to enhance performance, you know, from someone who's already quite athletic? I think there's, there's two camps that are like prevalent within the answer of that question. And there's, the first one is the athlete that's been doing it for a long time. And it's that it works for me thing mm. so a lot of athletes i mean i will be honest i've not worked with a huge amount of endurance athletes mm. um, but the ones i have worked with tended to be cyclists and a lot of cyclists do have this diet of just carbohydrate 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 um so they'll eat malt loaf during a ride and then after a ride they'll eat pasta and that's kind of it and when i'm introducing the idea that you know you need to potentially introduce some fats into this diet you need to make sure that you're on top of your protein intake um they can be quite resistant because 
what they're doing has worked up until now as far as they're concerned and it's it's just becomes overcoming that barrier of it's working but it could work better um i think the other camp of people are just the athletes who are potentially brand new or relatively new and really enthusiastic and they tend to be quite receptive to advice as long as you can can back it up with a mechanism of what look this is what we should do this is why it's going to work. This is the effect that you'll see. Give it a go for a month and see how you feel. And these kind of athletes generally will be like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give that a crack and we'll see how it goes. Yeah. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, so moving on to the, the actual podcast then, you know, what was the story behind it? Um, the Vancouver podcast started long before I was on it. So I'm, a somewhat recent addition. Um, ben started it while he was still in university, I believe. So it was just yeah. kind of as he, he himself has a similar story to me. As I said, everyone's got this story. So he, he lost a lot of weight as he started university. Um, really got into nutrition and just thought, you know, I want to share this with the world. Like I've got all of these cool ideas. Um, and it just started because he was one man with a laptop. So he thought, well, I'll just start doing little sort of 20 minute monologues and see if anyone's interested. Mm. Um, from there, a few people did become interested and it was rated as the number one health and fitness podcast for quite a while. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, which is pretty cool. Um, mm. From there, we got the first co-host who was Anna Sward of Protein Pal. I don't know if you're aware of, of Anna. Um, yeah. She's got a few books out, just baking yeah. the powder and stuff. So, um, yeah, so she was co-host for a while, and then it was Rachel Guy, who calls herself the Athletic Fox. She's a coach from the UK, but I, she was living in Australia. I don't want to butcher this, but I think she lives in Marbella now. Um, <laughs> yeah. And she was a really good co-host, but there was conflict, like conflict to schedule and stuff. Like they're both really busy, mm. um, and all the while I was working in the background of Benkinger Limited. So we've got an academy that we teach PTs about nutrition. Yeah. Um, so when he was looking for a new co-host, I was kind of the, the obvious choice. I mean, the first podcast we did wasn't me as a co-host. I was on as a guest, kind of similar to this. Yeah. Um, and it was because Ben did a podcast that represented strength training, which is my sort of main hobby horse. Um, and I disagreed with some of his points. So we had like an amicable debate and sort of exchange of ideas and came to middle ground and people were really responsive to it. So from there, it was, yeah, I moved on to the scene. Yeah. Well, it's obviously grown from strength to strength, as I say, from just the, the sheer variety of, of episodes you do. You, you, how much time do you actually find you're spending on it? Um, I don't know how much time Ben spends on it, but I can imagine it's a lot. As I said, we get a lot of guests from the US, from various mm. other places, um, mm. So it, it's the finding of guests and convincing them to talk to somebody for an hour is quite difficult. I mean, we've got guys on like um, like Dan John, uh, John Meadows has been on. These are like really busy people, so it's a scheduling issue. Sure, sure. Um, when I'm on, so we alternate it. So there's me, guest, me, guest. And the shows that I'm on are Q&As. So people will submit questions to the podcast and it's just kind of up to, up to me to kind of research how I'm going to answer them. So it's usually a few hours a week goes into like making sure that I have a comprehensive evidence-based response to any questions that are asked, because that's kind of the way that me and Ben works. So I provide like the evidence-based thing and Ben provides like the, 
the intuition, he's got a lot more coaching experience than I have, he's older than me. Um, and also, we, we both approach various problems in different angles, so that's how yeah. that went. That's fantastic. And, you know, it's music to our ears hearing that term evidence based because I don't, uh, you know, don't get me wrong. You've got to make uh, stuff interesting and people got to enjoy what they do. But if it's all based on, well, frankly, a lie, then it's not really going to take you forward long term. So that's quite a nice little segue into my next question, because I do know you've got a few areas you know, that, that you do kind of um, talk about more than others. And one of them is the different energy s- systems. And this is obviously very important because it determines, you know, the full spectrum from sprinters to endurance athletes to strength trainers. So if you could just give us a little idea of what the different energy systems are and how they work in practice. Yeah, sure. So energy systems are kind of the... The best way to describe it is that the means by which muscles produce ATP. So mm. ATP is referred to in every textbook ever as the energy currency of the body. Um, it's basically a molecule which is comprised of an adenosine and three phosphate groups that sort of come off it like a little tail. Yeah. Um, that ATP will bind to a protein that needs to do something. Um, and one of those phosphates will be removed. In the removal of that, energy will be released. And that is how that protein moves. So within your muscles, you've got motor proteins, ATP will bind to them, and that's how muscle contracts. It's a a complex topic, but it's relatively simple to sort of take in. Um, What happens then, though, is obviously that ATP is now missing a phosphate. And the thing is, a muscle only has enough ATP, I believe, to... If I get, I might get this wrong, but I think it's about six seconds of activity can be fueled by the ATP that's stored in the muscle at any one time. I, reason, I remember, it's very short, you're right, yeah. The reason for that is simply because ATP is really quite unstable. So it, it doesn't stay around for very long and you can't store lots of it. And that means that the muscle needs to replenish that ATP. And it will do that through various different means, generally speaking, depending on the activity that you're doing at the time. So. Energy systems can use either glucose or fatty acids. So they are the two things that food gets broken down into as far as energy is concerned, ignoring protein. Um, So glucose is what's produced when you eat carbohydrates. Fatty acids are what is produced, obviously, when you eat fats. Um, And the energy systems will use one of these two to make ATP. The energy system that you use largely depends on the muscle fiber type that predominates for the activity that you're doing. So within a muscle, then all of the fibers, which are like the little muscle cells, they're not all the same. And there are three sort of primary categories that you can subgroup them, but there's three main ones. Um, So you've got type one muscle fibers and they're your stereotypical slow twitch muscle fibers that everyone heard about in GCSEPE. the two important factors for those are they've got quite a low power output, but they're quite, they're quite good at endurance-based things. And they've got a lot of these things called mitochondria, which I'll come back to in a minute. Um, you've then got the type 2B muscle fibers, which are your stereotypical fast-twitch muscle fibers. They don't have a lot of mitochondria. They're very powerful, but they can't like, produce exertion for very long. Then you've got type 2A fibers that kind of sit in the middle. So... Just to briefly recap on that, type one is your fast twitch, type two B, sorry, type one, slow twitch, type two B, fast twitch, type two A, kind of middle-wise. 
So as you can tell from the power of output that these have, the higher intensity your exercise is, the further you will move from type 1 to type 2B muscle fibers. Now, the mitochondria are important in this because it is the mitochondria are little organelles, which is like, think of a cell as a body, an organelle is a cell organ, so it's just like a little thing that floats about in it. Cells have like hundreds of these. Um, and mitochondria use oxygen to produce energy from glucose and fatty acids. So that works in a really complicated method that's kind of outside of the, the scope of the podcast, but just remember for, for mitochondria to produce energy, they require oxygen. Now, the higher intensity your exercise is, the more energy needs to be produced. And that causes problems because you can't sort of shuttle oxygen to the muscle fast enough, which means that as the exercise intensity increases, those mitochondria are starved of oxygen. And that means that you need to use energy systems that don't require oxygen. So we'll kind of come back to this in a moment, but the key thing here is type one are really good at using fatty acids. Fatty acids need to have oxygen present in order to burn them. Yeah. Type two B fibers are really crap at using fatty acids because type two B fibers don't have a lot of the mitochondria that use oxygen. Hmm. And type two A kind of sit in the middle again. Exactly, yeah. So shifting back over to the energy system specifically, if you're running or cycling or swimming or whatever, and your heart rate is at like 65% or less, obviously that's a somewhat arbitrary number and it's going to vary between different individuals. But 65% of max heart rate or less, you're going to be primarily using type 1 muscle fibers. They're perfectly capable of using enough power to sort of do that activity. And that means that you're using fatty acids primarily for fuel, during sub 65% activity. That's gonna be somewhere around like a slow to steady jog. Hmm. As intensity increases, you move up into sort of the 65 to 75% of max heart rate zone. Um, and at that point, type 2A, and as you get higher up, type 2B muscle fibers start to predominate. Now what's important to remember is that at this point, type 1 fibers are still doing stuff. They don't just like switch off. Hmm. So at this point, you're using two different energies. So the first one was the aerobic system, known as the aerobic lipolysis, which is aerobic in the presence of oxygen, lipolysis uses fatty acids. Then you've got in the 65 to 75% zone, you've got aerobic glycolysis, which is burning glucose in the presence of oxygen. And then you've got anaerobic glycolysis, which is, produced, which is producing energy from glucose without oxygen being there. Hmm. Now, what, mean, what that means is, as you get a higher intensity within that little zone, you start using that anaerobic energy system. The anaerobic energy system produces two different byproducts. One of them is called lactate, and one of them is a hydrogen ion. So it's hydrogen with an extra electron. What's important about a hydrogen ion is if you mix it up in water, it becomes acidic. So hydrogen causes an acidic environment within the muscle and that, in, that acid will be produced at a greater rate the higher the intensity your exercise is. At some point around 75% of max heart rate, you hit what's known as the lactate threshold. And at that point, the hydrogen ions start getting built up a lot faster than you are able to flush them out. And that's where you hit what's called the wall. Like we've all experienced this. I don't do endurance exercise very often and I hit the wall very quickly. Um, 
And when you hit the wall, basically, you have to stop. You have to stop or you have to slow down. At that point, you're using primarily anaerobic glycolysis. So that's how we kind of shift through the energy systems. So you're running relatively slowly. You produce, you're primarily using fat. You run a bit quicker. You're using fat and glucose in kind of a mix. And then when you run really quickly, you're only using glucose. There's a little bit of fat going to be used, but for the sake of explanation, you're only really using glucose. Yeah. And the thing is with that is it's not really changeable. So to sort of bring this back to my hobby horse, which is nutrition, um, that means that if you are going to be doing any activity that is sort of above that 65% mass heart rate zone, you're going to require some amount of carbohydrate in your diet to fuel it because you're going to have to have glucose there. If you don't have glucose there, what your body can do is produce it on its own and it will do that by breaking down protein and that's going to lead to muscle loss, which even if you're not hoping to get jacked is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> um, so kind of the take home from that little section really is that any athlete that wants to compete in any sort of activity really is going to require carbohydrates in their diet. Obviously, if we're looking at like ultramarathons, if we're looking at Ironman or something like that, the majority of that activity is going to be around that 65% heart rate zone, somewhere around there. Like it doesn't matter who you are. You, even if you're a world champion marathon runner, you can't run at 75% max heart rate for prolonged periods of time. Um, and that means you're going to need carbohydrate. A lot of the fatty acid requirement for that energy production is going to come usually from your body fat. Because if you think about it, let's say you run a marathon. It's 26 point. I'm going to butcher this and everyone on the podcast is going to know. Is it <laughs> 26.2. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. And that so point that, two, everybody feels that point two as well. I can fully imagine that is the case um yeah so a, a very very rough ballpark figure most individuals will burn somewhere around 100 calories per mile um obviously body weight and stuff's all going to factor into that um that means that a marathon's going to burn somewhere in the region of two and a half thousand calories that's less than a pound of body fat if you were to use only body fatty acids for that which means that even very lean people have sufficient fatty acids floating around in their body already to fuel activity, which means that your nutrition, if you're engaging in sport, should usually be based around a higher carbohydrate intake. Now, that's not to say you can't perform well on a high-fat diet. You absolutely can. There are a bunch of athletes that do it. But if your carbohydrates become really low, so a lot of athletes have sort of tried a ketogenic approach, which is where you eat a very, very low-carb, relatively high-fat diet, your body shifts metabolism, again, we don't really need to go into keto now, but it's a very low-carb, very high-fat diet. Athletes have tried this because, in theory, if you're an ultramarathon runner, for example, you're going to be running for, God, 24 hours at a relatively low heart rate in comparison to a normal marathon, shall we say. Yeah. Um, what we see, however, is that that approach may be mistaken because... There's been a few studies on sort of endurance performance on a low-carb, high-fat diet. And there was a really good one by uh, Dr. Finney, and I think it was 2004. Um, and what he did is he tested cyclists in like an endurance-type event. Um, they were all on a ketogenic diet, 
ketid- ketosis, you need a couple of weeks to adapt to it. So they're fully keto adapted. They were keto athletes. Um, and what you found was that their performance was absolutely not hindered whatsoever. Their performance was fine, apart from when they needed to sprint or when they needed to do hills. Because at that point, their heart rate increased over that little zone. Mm-hmm. And they started to struggle having the carbohydrates to fuel them. Yeah. You've got storage of carbohydrate in your body called glycogen. When that runs out, you've got nothing else to use. And that means that if you're in a, like a ketogenic state, sprints, uphills, um, sprint finishes, overtakes, all of that is going to suffer because the muscle fibers that you use to do those activities are not going to have sufficient fuel to do them repeatedly. You might get, you might get one. Um, because there's always going to be some glycogen kicking about, but you are going to struggle there. And yeah, his study, I think it was called Ketogenic Diets and Physical Performance. That may be the right study. I think it was. Sure. I don't have this in my notes, so I'm doing that from memory. Um, okay. But it was, it was definitely Dr. Finney. He's um, a really good uh, low-carb researcher. Like He comes up with some really good stuff. Him and Dr. Volek, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Really good researchers. Um, so really... The main thing that I kind of want to take from the energy system thing is that most of the time when you're running, you're going to be primarily burning fatty acids, which means that you do need to have some fatty acids in your diet. It also means that you should avoid being too lean because if you are too lean, then your body's not going to be able to tap into those body fat stores. Of course, carrying excess weight is also a problem. So you do need to find that sort of Goldilocks zone in the middle. Um, And the other take home really is your diet should be based around at least a moderate intake of carbohydrates, even if only for the purpose of doing those sprints and doing those uphills. As like a final little sort of note on that before we move on. Um, a big thing that I've noticed in endurance athletes is a propensity for under eating. So a lot of athletes will end up not eating enough food in general, regardless of macronutrient composition to fuel their activity. And that's not only a problem because it's going to cause sort of unwanted weight loss. Um, you risk muscle loss. You risk obviously impaired performance. There's hormonal and immune function issues that come with that as well. So there was a study, I think it came out last year, that showed that um, as far as exercise um, participation goes in comparison to sexual function, it kind of works as an inverted you as a sorry, a, a normal distribution. So people who, yeah, an inverted U distribution. So people who don't exercise at all hmm. have impaired sexual function, sexual desire, and I think the word was sexual assertiveness that the researchers used, which was an interesting term. Um, in the middle ground, so moderate to relatively heavy exercises, sexual function was brilliant. But then in the very high exercise group, the problems that are associated with the low exercise group came back. Um, another study sort of did the same, but compared it with weight training and they didn't really see the same thing unless you went way off the end, which shows that endurance exercise probably, but obviously I can't say for certain, but probably due to the sort of energy use and the lack of refueling sort of does play into some hormonal issues. Um, and then, yeah, there's, there's the muscle loss and everything else that goes along with it. So I would say a really good, a really good approach for people who are engaging in sort of high, high output activity on a very regular basis would be to just be aware of your calorie requirement. So the way that I usually teach people to do this 
is there are a million different calculators you can use online to just sort of estimate your calorie requirement. They're never accurate, but they're, they're close enough for practical purposes. So what you can do is you can go on one of these and you can estimate your calorie requirement for a resting day. So a day that you don't run, a day that you don't cycle, a day that you don't swim. Find out how many calories you need on a normal day and you should never, ever, ever eat less than that. On days that you do train, most athletes nowadays have sports watches. Um, if you don't, you can pick up a decent one for 100 quid, and it's a really good investment. If you're spending hundreds of pounds on shoes and like running gear and that, like having a somewhat decent sports watch isn't too much of an ask. And what they can do is they can somewhat accurately estimate your calorie expenditure during a run. They're crap for, for high-intensity interval training. They're crap for weight training because your heart rate in these activities doesn't necessarily relate to your calorie output. But for, endu for endurance exercise, which is what they're designed for, they're pretty good. They're not brilliant, but they're pretty good. So what I would usually recommend is that on days that you do run, put your sports watch on, see the amount of calories that you've burned, and just add that to your resting calorie intake. Um, eat that on that day if it's a shit ton. So let's say you've gone and done a marathon today and you don't want to eat 6,000 calories, fair enough, break it up in half and have half today, half tomorrow, just as long as you do eat those back. And sort of looping back to the other thing, the majority of those should probably come from carbohydrates.